So if you ever wanted one thing but something else at the same time and you kind of know that it can't happen, you know, the whole uh, saying, you know, I want to have my cake and eat it too, you know, you, people want to swim but they don't want to get wet, you know, they, they want to get in shape but they don't want to sweat, they, they want, uh, you know, they want to have money in the bank account but they want to buy stuff too, we're kind of full of those contradictions, aren't we? It's like our head knows one thing and our heart wants to go the other direction. And it's like a constant battle that we have going on inside of us of which side is going to win. And, you know, some of it we can just laugh at and be like, yeah, that's human nature. But since when has human nature ever really been a good thing? It seems to get us in trouble over and over and over because human nature has fallen. Human nature is flawed. Human nature is sinful. And so what John is doing in this letter is helping to clarify what it is we should be looking at, what should we should be following, what it would look like, you know, what life will look like. Because what was happening is the church that John is writing to is there were some false teachers that had arisen within the group, and they were teaching heresy. They were teaching bad doctrine. They were teaching things that weren't true, and it was kind of starting to spread, and what they were teaching was a worldliness in which you could be a part of the world, you could be a part of the philosophy and the value system of the world while at the same time claiming God. And as you've seen, John's come along and he keeps saying things like, no, if you are a part of the world, you can't be part of God. If you are, you know, live in, in hatred, you're in the darkness, the truth isn't in you, you're a liar. I mean, he... He just kind of keeps laying these things out there that are really kind of just plain as day statements when you really think about it. He's not plumbing the depths of let's find the most, you know, theologically profound, you know, small detail and just focus on it. He's kind of looking at the big picture and saying, look, if you're going to follow God, A, B, and C are going to happen. And if you're following God, then X, Y, and Z aren't going to happen and take the big picture view and look at your life as how does this work? Where is this lining up in your own life? And so he comes this week in 1 John 2, 15 and 17 to another kind of absolute statement that's very challenging for a Christian in any age. And yet it is as true today as it was when he wrote it. And so he says in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Wow. So he doesn't even kind of give any room right here. He says you're either loving God or you're loving the world, and you cannot do both at the same time. Now, why can he make a statement like that? Well, if we really think about it, it's because there is no relationship between light and dark. There, there, it's one or the other. Because light is so powerful that 
you can be in absolute darkness and have just the smallest bit of light shine and you will see it. It will show itself. You know, have you ever been down in, in New Mexico in Carlsbad Caverns when they used to turn off the lights and let you experience what true darkness is? You know, they've stopped doing that because it was freaking people out so much. There were people that just couldn't handle the absolute darkness like that. And yet, in today's world, you know, we, we all have cell phones. As soon as that dark would happen, people would be like, that's it. And, and that light would be, you know, something we don't even notice during the day, and we just see it in that kind of darkness. That light would just permeate everything. It would pierce the darkness. And that is exactly what he is saying should happen in the life of a Christian and what a Christian's life should be in this world. It should be a light that absolutely pierces the darkness. And so within that, we see what our commitment should be. And, and we really, it reveals what our commitments are. Because John makes this absolute statement, verse 15 again. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I don't care who you are. That should make you shiver a little bit. That should bring you a little bit of like, ooh, man. Nothing? I mean, I... What if I just strongly dislike the world? Is that enough? What does he say? He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, this statement is one of the most important in this entire letter. The world is in darkness. The world is under control, under the control of who? Satan, the prince of the power of the air. He is our enemy. And therefore... If the world is under control by the enemy, then that means that the value system, the belief system, the philosophical system, all of the systems that we see at play in this world are going to reflect the influence and control of the enemy at some level. All of them. That means our system of entertainment. That means... Our, our governmental systems, all of them at some point are finally going to reveal themselves as being a tool of the enemy that is used to bring darkness into this world. Now, John realizes this, and that's why he says you can't love the world. Don't fall in love with the things of the world. Don't follow the things of the world. Don't follow the world. Don't be attached to this world. You see, to love the world or the things of the world is to rebel against God. It's that simple. Now, we, you know, a lot of people think, what does that mean? You know, what are the things of the world? I mean, does that mean I, I can't enjoy, you know, going to eat out? I mean, you know, where does the line get drawn? Well, what he's talking about has less to do with, you know, kind of just material things of the world and more to do with the root behind it. More to do with what does it lead you to become. So it's not saying we can't go to our favorite restaurant and enjoy the meal that's there. That's fine. That's, that's kind of a neutral thing. Everybody has to eat. What he's saying is don't be so rooted in the things of the world that it pulls you away from Christ because they will. We can become so rooted in the systems of this world and allow them to have such influence over us that we will start to move away from God and, and 
we cannot be a house divided. We will either love God and the things of God and reject the things that pull us away from him, or we end up what he says here, a liar who claims the love of God, but really our heart is captured by the things of the world, by the systems of the world, by the power of the world. And we find ourselves investing in that. You see, what is it that the world really shows us? The world loves what? Self. It promotes self and values which are selfish. Over and over. And, and I believe it's, it's only getting worse because as we've entered into this digital age, we have what, what I've heard called, and I agree with it, really this digital narcissism that each person now has their own platform. And each person now wants to have this influence and, and fame in the world. And we have people doing, you know, TikTok videos and all of these things just to get followers, just to get people. And what do we see as this happens is people are becoming more and more obsessed with self, with their own happiness, with their own fulfillment. And our sense of community, our sense of responsibility to others continues to fall as a society. And as it falls, the love of the world is what's on display. The love of the world, the love of the things of the world is driving us in really bad directions. And don't think that the church is immune. We see it when we try to sensationalize faith. Look, the gospel is the greatest story that we could ever tell, right? I mean, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. That's a pretty cool story. That is an amazing story. That is a man born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross and came back to life three days later. Hollywood can't come up with anything better. And not only did he come back to life, he ascended to heaven and was, was glorified and given the position he had before. So now that... Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. I mean, the, the story is written and it's amazing. And yet we think somehow that story's not enough. And so what do we do? We start watering down the real story and start making it about us. And we're reflecting a love of the world when we do that. You see, the love of the world is a love of self. The love of God is what? It loves others more than self, promotes the welfare of others, and values others. What does God say? He says, love the Lord your God outside of yourself with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So whatever you commit to yourself, we're also supposed to be able to commit to others. That's not going to be an easy thing in this world that is self first, that I'm looking out for me. The love of the world is inwardly focused. The love of God is outwardly focused. And they are so completely different that they cannot coexist together in one person. That's why John says, don't love the world or the things of the world. If you do, the love of the Father is not in you. And he's not saying that you know, we've got to prove it one way or another. He's just saying, look, they're going to have such different... If you have the love of God in you, you have the Holy Spirit, you are born again, you will look at the things of the world 
And in time, as you grow in Christ, you'll be repulsed by it. You'll look at it and just think, no, 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 no. That's, that is the opposite of life. That is the opposite of truth. That is the opposite of everything God did for me and what I'm supposed to do for others. And this is one of the ongoing themes in John's gospel and in his letters. In John 12, 46, Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So, there's an assumption in this. There's an underlying assumption. What is that? When Jesus says this, that without Jesus, we're all in darkness. He came so that we might not be in darkness. He came as a light. He is the light we look to, but there is nothing we can do. There is nothing that the world can offer to bring that kind of light that only Jesus Christ can bring. That means everything that the world genuinely offers as an answer to life is rooted in darkness. Now think about that. Have, has anybody in here ever said, you know what, I'm really, really glad I went along with the culture and the crowd after you did it? Anybody ever been like, that was a good decision? No. And in fact, when we look at history, we always look back and wonder, we're like, how could people be so fooled? Right? Because hindsight's twenty twenty, and we're able to look back and we're like, why would so many people just, just follow that? I don't understand it. I would never. Ooh, look. <laughs> you see, it's human nature. And John says, look, you can't trust human nature. You cannot trust yourself and you can't trust the world. You have to look to Jesus. The love of the Father is what must guide us. Because the love of the world is going to be a direct path to one thing and one thing only. And that is a path that is going to appeal to sin. A path that is going to lead us into sin, lead us into rebellion, and lead us into death. And that's what John says here. In verse 16, he says, For all that is in the world, and now he describes it, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And hence from Satan, because the prince of the power of the air. This is how sin works in our hearts. Okay, what is the appeal of sin? It appeals to one of these three areas every time. This is the path that sin takes to become active in our lives. Now remember, we don't need help, but we do, it, it is, this is where it appeals. This is the path that says, ooh, look at me, I'm shiny. These are the three areas of shiny that we are drawn to in our sinful nature. And, this, and the, the enemy knows that. Satan knows exactly what it is that's broken in us. He knows how to appeal to our flesh he knows how to appeal to our desires. And so he literally orders the world to constantly bombard us in one of these three areas. And so let's look at those for a second. Because he's showing us the route temptation takes. 
So one, the desires of the flesh. Being controlled by physical desires and urges. Being at the mercy of one's own physical desires. Now, does that mean every physical desire is evil? No. God created us in ways. He created us to be hungry, and that is a physical desire. He he created us to want relationship. That is a desire. He created us with these desires, but he did not create us to be slaves to them. He created us in... Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians. He he says, look, the food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. There's a difference in eating because you're hungry and gluttony, right? And, And just being a slave to appetite. There is a huge difference there. God does not condemn us for eating and even enjoying the meals that keep us alive. He wants us to. You know how I know God wants us to enjoy that? He gave us taste buds. He didn't have to do that. He could have just made it like, you know, just eat. Okay, that's enough and now you're good. He wanted it to be a pleasurable experience for us. But he doesn't want us living for that. And we live in a world right now that is out of control with sensuality. And that is living for the senses. That is that... Everything has to be this experience that is always pleasurable, that is just wrapped up in everything has to be good all the time. And if it's not good, then take this pill so that you can ignore the bad because everything has to be good all the time. All the time. Everything has to be good. And God just didn't make us for that. And one of the best examples of how sensuality like this being a slave to desires. One of the best examples in Scripture of it destroying somebody is probably not one you're thinking of, but it's Esau selling his entire birthright for one meal. Now, how many of you would sell your house and everything you own and give it all away because you're hungry and somebody you know has got a bowl of stew going and you're like, I, I, I have to have it right now. Now. And yet that's where he was. It's not like he couldn't have walked inside and asked his parents like, hey, you got some more food? But he was so blinded by his, by his own physical desires that he was willing to destroy his entire life, his future for one That's what sensuality leads to. And we live in a world that encourages that over and over and over. And when you understand this part of temptation, when you understand that this is one of the routes that sin takes and you really start to pay attention to it, you realize how much our society is built around indulging the flesh. And I mean indulging it. Like don't ever tell it no. Because no causes suffering, and suffering is something to be avoided at all costs. You deserve to be happy. How many times have you heard that? This week. You deserve. You deserve it. And it's like Satan just puts it all right out there for us. You know, we, we went to uh, Sam's recently, and I walked in, and I just noticed all the junk food. 
in mass quantities right there up front. And it's all like, look, just take it, just take it, just take it. Just, it's all on display. You know, you're going to find the healthy stuff. What do you got to do? You got to go like dig back in the freezer. We got a couple leaves of something back here. But, and I know we can, we can laugh at that, but think about our entire culture, how much is based around that line of thinking. Indulge, 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 indulge at every turn. The desires of the flesh. And that's just one of three. The second one is, he says, the desires of the eyes. And again, our digital age has made this something that is just blowing off the chart right now. The desire of the eyes. What is that? That is covetousness activated by what we see. How many of you have ever been happy with what you had until you saw what you didn't have? You know, you're, you're, life is good. And then you see, ooh. And then you start comparing. And you know, there used to be a phrase for that called keeping up with the Joneses. But the Joneses can't even keep up with the Joneses anymore. Because Satan has us so coveting everything out there that we're chasing our own tail on something that could never actually exist. You know, people try to get the good life and, and, and they work and they work and they work and they work to get the good life. And when they get to the good life, they have no life left. Because coveting, there's always more. There's always more. Materialism, greed, and discontent are born out of the desire of the eyes. We might paraphrase this whole passage by saying, do not embrace the world's ways or goods. When you do, it squeezes out your love for God. When you live for getting your own way, and for getting everything you want, and for looking good compared to others, you are not living for God, but for the world. This is foolish because it suffocates your relationship with God, and in the end, it will all go up in smoke anyway. Why do we spend our lives chasing things that are simply going to vanish in the end? And yet our world does. You know how many advertisements you're bombarded with on a daily basis? Through signs, TV, phone. I mean, you can't even play a game on your phone without an ad coming up. Who hates the ads? Yeah. See, I know. We're, we're there. We are bombarded with advertisement just constantly at every turn that is desire. It's part of the world. It is the desire of the eyes. It is meant to stoke covetous desires for whatever it is. And everybody has them. Everybody has a weakness. Everybody has something that they're like, ooh, I got my attention. That is what the world offers. And then finally, the pride of life. Accomplishment, materialism, the elevation of self. The word pride has to do with making more of oneself than is justified by reality. The pride of life has to do with arrogance, narcissism, and self-absorption. That is the result of living for the pride of life. It elevates the selfish trinity of me, myself, and I above all else. The pride of life says, look at me. Look at what I have accomplished. 
Look at who I am. Look at what I can do. Look, celebrate me. And while none of us in here would probably ever say it in those terms, the pride of life absolutely appeals to all of us. We want to be special. We want to stand out. We want to to have accomplishment. We want to be noticed. And the world tells us if you aren't, you failed. Now, let's just have a moment about how many of you, you know, watched American Idol a whole lot? Yeah, y'all are really sheepish about that right now. But you know, even when that, when that show started, it used to amaze me what people would go to to try to be famous humiliate themselves and embarrass themselves just at the, just, just notice, just, I, just see me. When, you know what? On the cross, God was saying, I see you. And I love you. And I want you. And I can't think of any better compliment than the creator of the universe saying, I see you. I know your name. I created you and I want you with me for eternity. You see, everything that we search for through these three areas of temptation is offered freely by God. All of it. Life, our physical body, given to us by God. He knows what we need. He knows the path to contentment, the desire of the eyes. The, the desire to have, what has he said? He said, all that I have is, you know, in, the, in the, the parable of the prodigal son, the father says, all that I have is yours. It's all here. And he promises us a future and an eternity in, in which he will be with us and there will be no more suffering and pain and death and, and, and that we will have, you know, he says, there are many mansions. I mean, he's giving us a description of a future that is better than anything this world could offer. That if we look to that, we find hope. And the pride of life? What's better than being called a son or a daughter of the king? Everything that Satan cheaply models on earth through these is offered in reality by God. And so, when John says that all that is in the world is not from the Father... He's saying that the world's ways, its values, its philosophies, and its goals are designed by the prince of the power of the air to appeal directly to our sinful nature. Nothing good can come from it. It is all designed to destroy us in the end, to keep us from knowing who God is. And these three avenues of temptation are on full display in Genesis 3 when Satan tempted Eve. It's all right there. So in Genesis 3, starting in verse 4, he tells her, you will not surely die. There's the lie. He he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You will be like God, the impossible lie. 
Satan always starts everything with an impossible lie that we will chase and chase and chase and we'll never get it because it's impossible. It's never going to happen. Then she saw that the tree was good for food. What is that? Desire of the flesh. She must have been hungry in that moment. I guess Satan waited until dinner time. And he knew this is when they normally eat. She's hungry right now. This temptation will have more effect when she's hungry. What does that tell us? Satan knows our weaknesses. He knows when to attack us when our defenses are down. Was a delight to the eyes. What is it? Desire of the eyes. She had never looked at it in a longing way before that moment. She had never looked at it as something to be desired. And then when he told her the lie and she looked at it through the lens of the lie, suddenly it was attractive. Suddenly it was something that she coveted for herself. And then finally, desire to make one wise, pride of life. I can be more than I am now. I can be more. Did she need to be more? No. Did Adam need to be more? No, they were king and queen of creation in that moment. Highest of God's creation with an upward calling to God and to rule over creation. Seems like a pretty good situation. Put in a garden that was already cultivated and working. Everything was good. And yet she wanted more because of the pride of life. It's all on display. See, with sin, the promise is always impossible. The paths are always the same. And they always destroy the very thing they promise in the end. Instead of becoming like God, mortality and death entered the world. The very thing it promised, it took away their relationship with God. And so what do we do? Because John tells us, in verse 17, he says, And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now that's great because if the world's passing away and its desires and the way it does this, that's why he's saying in heaven, in the new heaven, new earth, there won't be any temptation. All of these things are going to be gone. So that's an incredible future. So what is it that he's calling us to do? He is saying invest in what lasts. Invest in what lasts, what's real. And I know in this world it can be confusing because what's real, what isn't. What, look, the things of God are real. That's why we have to know that the love of God is in us. That's why we have to renew our minds through Scripture. That's why we worship is to remind us to draw our attention back to God so we know what's real. So we know that we're chasing the right things in life. You see, what the author means by doing the will of God in this context, you notice he doesn't just say, just believe it. He says, he who does the will of God abides forever. Because to know God is to follow God. To follow God is to see the fruit of the Spirit in your life and to build for the kingdom of God, to invest in the mission of God. It all ties together. We like to compartmentalize it, but God doesn't. It's all one life. To follow God is to follow His ways. To have the love of God in you is to love God's ways and engage in them. And so it also means 
if we are engaging in the things of God, clearly we're not engaging in the processes of the world because you can't do both at the same time. You just can't. You're either doing one or the other. And he's saying, if, look, the world's passing away. Don't give yourself to that which is going to go away in the end. And so it means avoiding the lust of the eyes and the pride and possessions and, and the pride of life. Look beyond the immediate context of the situation and look to the bigger picture of the kingdom of God. Because we can get tunnel vision. We can get wrapped up in, in the moment and not think beyond that or even wrapped up in a season of life and not look beyond that. And that's all we see. And God says, oh, there's so much more. There is a lot more here. And so in order to avoid the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, we literally have to do the very thing Jesus told us we had to do to follow him. What is that? Deny yourself. That's why he says, you got to start. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. We have to start by denying ourselves because when we start with ourselves, we start with the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, or the pride of life. That will always be our starting point when we start with ourselves. So does deny yourself make a little more sense now? It's not that he says you've got to be miserable and you've got to deny yourself because you can never enjoy life again because God, somewhere, somebody's having fun and we have to stop. That's not what he means. He's saying we all have a natural impulse that is born in this sinful nature that will set us on a path to trying to find and, and fulfill the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, or the pride of life. And those are empty paths that cannot provide what they promise. And Jesus says, look, if you're weak, weary, heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. I will give you life. I am the bread of life. I mean, he's over and over, he's telling you, he is the one. But in order to follow him, we have to get over ourselves. We have to give up control and stop trying to chase that which makes sense to our sinful side. And when we do that, we start to invest in the eternal. We start to invest in those things that are going to last for all eternity. There are truths and, and there are, are, are things in the spiritual world right now that if you invest in, if, if you invest in learning how to love God, that investment won't go away. It will continue to grow and then in eternity it will still be there. You invest in the fellowship of God's people. Guess what? We're still going to be fellowshipping in heaven. We got all eternity. It's not going to go away. We can invest in those things that are going to last for all eternity. And this has been a call from God ever since he started the redemption of man. In Isaiah 55, 1 through 3, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts. Now, who thirsts? All of us. We all want to be loved. We all want this rest from the world. We all want a life of meaning and purpose. Hence the pride of life. But if we go about it the wrong way, we make it about us and not about God's glory and His kingdom. 
And so it becomes a false purpose when we chase it ourselves and it doesn't deliver. When we chase God in his purpose, we are fulfilled in the process as well, as well as God being glorified. So he says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul might may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Now, does that sound like God is wanting to disappoint us? He's saying, I got the banquet set. Come to the table and eat. But you've got to get over yourself to do it. You've got to let go. You've got to just let go of the world and come to me and I will fulfill you. I will not withhold from you. And Jesus repeated this same sentiment in John six twenty seven. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. He says, I'll give it. God is there saying, I will give it to you, but you cannot find it chasing it by loving the world or the things of the world. The world cannot offer anything that God offers. The world offers cheap substitutes that will not fulfill. And why we have to find that out the hard way so many times, I don't know. But the more we invest in God, the more fulfilled we become. The more we realize the emptiness of the world. And these false teachers in John, in in this church, were telling him, you can do all this stuff. And that's John's like, no, don't listen to them. You can't do that. And the reason you can't is because it's going to take the very life away from you that you want. Don't follow it. Don't hate people. Don't give in to hate. Don't do any of that. Let the love of the Father guide you. Because what does John say? He says, he who does the will of God abides forever. Abides forever. He says, you will know what real life is, and it will never end. God will never disappoint. He will never run out I don't know anybody that has followed God closely that looked back on their life and said, you know, I kind of regret it. God really kind of let me down. No, I've never heard anybody say that. Now, I've heard people who tried God say that. But you know what they never did? They never really denied themselves. When we deny ourselves and we follow him, God satisfies the deepest desires of our heart. And he says, and I have more. I'll never run out. I will give you freely for all eternity if you will come to me. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you today. And God, I just thank you for the opportunity to worship. And Lord, I pray that you would work. Just reveal in our hearts those places that we are looking for one of these three areas of temptation to satisfy us in ways that only you can. Lord, help us to recognize it and to turn away from it. 
to repent of not following you in faith, but thinking we can provide for ourselves or that the world can provide it. Lord, help us have the wisdom to see the ways of the world that we are being influenced by, that we can turn away from so that we would glorify you and show the world your light and your goodness and that we would experience the fruit of the Spirit. Father, help us to not love the things of the world or the world itself. That our commitment would be to your kingdom, not to Satan's kingdom in this world. God, as in Jesus' holy name, we pray this together. Amen.